Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Your main event in Washington today, the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. It will begin at 9 Eastern this morning. Marty Schenker drops by. Bloomberg's very own, one of our finest. Marty, front and centre, the whistleblower complaint. Just what can the acting director of national intelligence actually tell us today? Well, <clears throat> he can put some more uh, context on the uh partial transcript that came out one of the yesterday uh, one of the clear uh, issues is that this is just one incident in a in a series of uh, anecdotes that prompted the whistleblower's report in the first place so we are going to get more than that phone call and what's in that uh, we are getting reporting and there's been a lot of narrative that it is far worse than what was released yesterday. Uh, have we got any idea of whether this was a series of calls, whether it involved more than one person? How does this work, Marty? What do we know so far? Well, that is really why the what the whistleblower has to say uh, is so important because there, there's, there are indications that this was n- the sequence of events. There was more than one call. There's Rudy Giuliani's involvement in Ukrainian affairs. And whether or not this is a connect the dots moment where you can actually see a pattern. And one key element is the motivation for withholding that aid from Uh, Ukraine. If we can get to that, it could provide even a worse narrative for the White House. Is part of the story here today or the mystery that we're going to see, it feels like Watergate that day John Dean showed up and nobody knew what was going to happen, including me. I had the luxury of watching that live. Uh, Marty, is this going to involve other nations? You talk about its other phone calls, et cetera, et cetera, but is a whistleblower looking at just Ukraine or is it other nations as well? We don't know. We don't Tom. know. We, we just do not know, but it is quite possible. Remember, famously, <clears throat> the conversations that Donald Trump had with Vladimir Putin that we never got a readout from. So they, that might be part of this, but we just don't right. know. Does he have the legal counsel that President Clinton or President Nixon had? It's been such an ad hoc administration. You mean Donald uh, Trump? Yeah. Are there three lawyers in the White House on the public dole helping him? Or does he have a private counsel, or is he his own counsel? I, I think, like with everything else, Donald Trump is his own counsel. There's reporting this morning that a number of people in the White House were very opposed to releasing this partial transcript, recognizing that it could be it could backfire in the president. So, uh, but Donald Trump is just plowing ahead. He's releasing. He's declassifying the whistleblower account. He's going. He says he's going to make all his conversations available. And look, I think Donald Trump actually does believe he did nothing wrong. And that fundamentally is what his problem is. That was the line that a lot of people were pushing yesterday. I believe one line that I heard, Marty, was that we were a quid short of a pro quo. And there was certainly not an explicit quid pro quo within that readout of that call. But for many people, it was implicit. Now, is it that interpretation enough to go forward with an impeachment? Well, I, I think the Democrats are going to go forward with impeachment on the, alone the request for a favor from the Ukrainian president. 
the question really becomes, can he be convicted and removed from office? And I think the chances of that are quite remote. Marty, always great to see you. Marty Schenker there joining us ahead of this key address a little bit later today, facing down Congress, the acting Tom, Director of National Intelligence, Joseph McGuire. Stephen Whiting with us with Citigroup. Uh, lots to talk about. John, why don't you kick it off as we talk to their strategist dovetailing economics into what we see in corporate Well, America. Steve, the line that got repeated again and again yesterday was trade the policy, not the politics. And the problem with this story is that we don't know what the politics ultimately means for policy. So just hands off and carry on as normal. Is that the approach from you? Well, let, let's just imagine, you know, you own... Uh, a piece of the world's greatest companies. Now, just because you have liquidity in the stock market doesn't mean you should sell out of everything and then think that you can uh, appropriately buy in. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, to be trading uh, this. And I think what we hear right now, which which I find most interesting, is that everyone is jumping ahead to the end of 2020. So many conversations around the world are, but that could be bad. And what it tells you is that there's a lot of uh, concern and worry in the marketplace that there's this confirmation bias that, aha, now I have uh, the election of 2020. And in the meantime, you know, the fact that markets, you know, are usually very, very focused on six month ahead fundamentals, that is, if nothing in the world of the economy could actually sway the market, I think it would be a mistake. Right. I think that you will see that the economic outcomes, you know, of the next six months, you know, will bear right on asset prices, just like normal. The line that I pick up from your reading and your writing, it really jumped out at me and made me laugh. Markets feel like they're gripped by a mania of doom or no doom, frivolously flipping between extreme views, swiftly changing trade rhetoric and monetary policy changes contribute to the disorder. That disorder seems to be permeating right the way through the Treasury market day after day after day. It's one narrative to the next and no real consistency. What do you make of that, Steve? What do you take away from that? So... um perspective is a bit lacking. I, you know, I'll be fair here in the sense that I don't think our stock market has had any sort of mass exaggeration, right? We have not uh, had a, you know, 20% yeah, drop in share prices. Yeah. You know, this has been a very, very gentle summer in terms of the absolute correction. You know, we have, uh, fortunately, you know, very uh, diversified broad stock market that that manages, you know, to uh, to do that. Um, you know, but, but the situation, like you just said, in the bond market, the bond market needs some bad news. And suddenly because, okay, we have some weaker data, but it's not as bad as expected. And suddenly this index or that index looks better. And people just say the narrative has all changed. The recession is off. Uh, the economy is recovering. And the story can almost change, you know, like with the daily news cycle. You know, we have a reality here. Uh, and that is that we have a manufacturing slump that's going to affect earnings. We have a very low rate outlook. Uh, and we have an easing Fed. Is that enough? Is um, that enough I, to sit here I and say, I think it's enough to outlast it. Steve, the one thing I worry about with stuff like this is that we wake up every morning and we're always obsessed with the shark closest to the boat. And at the moment, there's several. You wake up, what's happening in Washington? What's the latest on trade? And you kind of skim over the latest economic data in Germany, dreadful, South Korea, horrible. And there's an earnings season coming up that you refer to that could not be pretty at all. It might be pretty ugly. It might be the worst quarter that we've had this year based on what we're seeing around the world for the big multinationals. 
I, I think so. And again, this will not be the quarter where we suddenly wake up and, you know, the analysts have overestimated all of the EPS for the current quarter. That's not going to happen here. Um, but we could be down a bit uh, from where we were a year ago. I think the, the main thing that investors need to do is look ahead and see, you know, have we broken this growth regime entirely? And I think that the things that would drive an American economic downturn, you know, this is these are still man-made things. This is either monetary policy, which was running off course last year, which is being corrected, and trade policy. And again, if the U.S. Uh, was fighting a multi-front trade war uh, across the world at a, an otherwise vulnerable time, this would be a lot worse. We think that basically that. Um, the relatively healthy consumer fundamentals, record low debt burdens, 8.5% savings rate. Uh, what is this uh, oil mm -hmm. price shock we talked about? A four-month high in oil. We didn't have yeah. a recession four months ago. So that this can basically outlast this manufacturing okay. correction. Steve Whiting, thank you so Steve, much. Thank you. Greatly, greatly appreciate it there with an update. Uh, no, it's really be a first look almost into October in the earnings mystery uh, that's out there. John, I just think it's time. I need a variety of class types, including cycling, running, boot camp, yoga, outdoor, and more. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I mean, did you get your shares in Peloton? Oh, right. Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, you usually get, you know, you've got I can your see, source. I can see you on Peloton. Uh, they I priced high, the huh? Yeah. I mean, do you, do you, you have to get the membership to get the bike. What happens with the music? What's the latest with that? I have no idea. The joy of Leslie Vinjamuri of Chatham House is on the front of her research piece. It goes, this will go on forever. She joins us now uh, with, uh, you know her so well from Bloomberg Surveillance, head of the U.S. and America's program, Leslie Vinjamuri on Washington and this new impeachment process. Leslie, I'm, I'm, of course, jesting it will go on forever. At some point it will end. How would you presume now, knowing that the Senate's not going to let this move on, how do we actually extricate ourselves from this process? Well, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen. And I would argue that, you know, this will be a very dynamic process. And by dynamic, I mean, I think a lot of things are going to change. We've been saying for the last several months uh, or more than a year of various investigations that Americans' attitudes are not changing, that people are digging in their heels. I don't think we're going to see the same thing with this with these yeah. impeachment hearings. I think this is categorically different and that we're going to see people's attitudes change. Does the president have legal counsel? I've been thunderstruck at the, you know, the complete coverage out of the Washington Post, the New York Times, Bloomberg News, everybody else. There, there's no article about his legal team. Is there a legal team? You know, it, I think it's uh, unclear exactly who he's taking advice from. He's clearly taking advice from Giuliani and various other people, part of which is seeming to get him into a lot of trouble. Um, but it's, you know, it, even the fact that that transcript was released in the way that it was suggests that uh, the level of oversight caution uh, is, is not what one, one might anticipate that it would be. Either that or this is a president who seemed to think that that, that, that transcript suggested nothing that was uh, beyond the pale. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has emphasized that this is somewhat different. This is easier to understand. Focus on the sequencing. The aid was withheld, then this call took place. Will this continue to be easy to understand? Or are we about to see this getting increasingly complex? And Leslie, the reason I ask is because how this plays out in the court of public opinion is ultimately what matters. 
And I just wonder if it gets increasingly complex and it gets more difficult to understand whether the court of public opinion will actually come with the Democrats through this effort. I, you know, well, first of all, the, you know, we are, we expect that the whistleblowers report may well be released to the public on Thursday or Friday. That might be fairly complex, but the basic storyline is not complicated. Uh, the details will be complex, but I think that there will be a lot of effort put into communicating this very clearly um, to the American public, not only through the hearings, but by journalists, um, by analysts, by you know the broader public debate, I think will zero in on a couple of very clear things. And the, and the most important one, I think, will be that, a, that the American president is alleged to have put pressure, to have colluded with a, the leader of a foreign government to investigate one of the leading candidates in the next presidential elections. That's a pretty clear storyline. If you then add to that the threat to withhold military assistance that was yeah. appropriated specifically to help Ukraine. Those are, again, two very clear storylines that I don't think people will struggle to understand. Leslie, what does it do to the rest of policy? I, I, I mean, I let's assume we come out of the 9 o'clock hearing today. Folks, again, on Bloomberg Radio, you'll hear that with Mr. McGuire. Okay, we come out of this, we move on to the unknown. How does anybody focus on just to suggest a Chinese discussion in early October? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a presidency that has been marked by extreme distraction by the various things going on in the White House. This is, I would argue, game-changing. It takes it to a new level, mm-hmm. and it will undoubtedly distract the president and his team. But that this is a team that's been distracted for a very long time. But, you know, Tom, it might be the case that this also... Uh, drives the president to to double down on a number of his key foreign policy initiatives in, in order to you know move the debate and the focus somewhere else. Leslie, thank you so much. Leslie thank Vinton you, Murray Leslie. with Chatham House today, a briefing here uh, on uh, the story of Washington. Hugo uh, is with us, Hugo Rogers of Dell Tech, and we want to dive into the markets here, but I've got to take 120 seconds and talk about the archipelago that moves northwest of Turks and Caicos, right up buttressed against Florida, and it is the Bahamas. It is a sprawl of islands. I mean, it's like the Philippines. It's like Indonesia. It's just the Bahamas, and we focus on Nassau and that. You're living there. Give us an update on how the Bahamas will recover from this horrific storm. Uh, yes, well, thank you, Tom. It has been a horrific storm, particularly for the northern islands of Great um, Grand Bahama and, and Abaco. Um, and the answer is, it's going to take time, effort, money, um, and um, and just like a, a, a civic sort of duty and 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 sense yeah. of coming together to to deliver <clears throat> some kind of recovery because those places have been properly devastated. It will take a sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice of a nation? Explain how the colonial heritage dovetails into the current nationhood of the Bahamas. That's that's an excellent question. Um, And uh, it's a long cultural history. Uh, I noticed with interest that the Royal Navy from from the UK were there pretty quickly. They got a supply vessel um, in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. specifically for disaster relief, and they were there with in a few days so the UK connection is there um, the US connection is now very very strong and there were 
big relief efforts mm. um, within a short period of time. Um, and um, I think the Bahamas very much appreciates that kind of input. Well, the heritage of the Bahamas, certainly with Bloomberg surveillance and Bloomberg on the economy, going back to Sir John Templeton, and of course, what mm. Dell Tech is, is doing as well. You have an advantage, John, in February. It's a particular advantage, particularly when you and I come live from the Bahamas in February. Oh, you're we'll planning be, that. I'm planning I that. I like it's, that. Great. It's on the calendar. Uh, but you have an advantage of distance. From the distance of the Bahamas to investing, is it just simply about American large cap companies or can the story change? No, it's 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 very much a, a, a sort of a global sort of set. It can be a global center. It, it sort of pivots nicely between um, uh, sort of, uh, the the ex-colonial piece from from Europe and 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 the UK, and then it's also got a, a pivot. So Deltex history um, is is based in US uh, investors, but with lots of interest in in Latin America and so on. So there's a nice connection between um, the US and and Latin America through the Bahamas. So it, it's really an international hub and look at the data coming out of Bloomberg looking at the look at the data coming out of of multiple sources the the, the world is getting smaller due to information technology and, um, and we have full access as you mentioned you know Templeton has been in the Bahamas for a very long time running investment operations and uh, yeah. and using using that hub I'm going to do to you what many people do to me. Um, and when you have an accent like this, they say, what is happening with Brexit? Yes. And I got some notes from our producer on you, Hugo, and the notes say, I can talk hours on Brexit. So I'm pleased you can because I struggle too. What on <laughs> earth is happening back home? The, the, the talking for hours on Brexit is, is the, obviously the machinations that are going on right now. If you ask me for what is the conclusion on Brexit, my answer will be very short, which is, I don't know. The, the answer to that question is what happens in a general election and everything is fragmenting so aggressively even as we speak. This, uh, the, you know, the, look at the rhetoric going on in the Houses of Parliament right now. The, the, the people's positions are being polarised so aggressively that the outcome for, from a general election is very hard to, to say right now. Uh, clever sophologists are, are struggling to, to re read how the, how the vote breaks down between the Brexit Party, between the Conservatives, the Lib Dems and Labour. And, and unless you have that outcome you can't have clarity on the outcome of it's Brexit. It's one of those stories that has become so complex that people are just choosing to ignore it. And when <laughs> I say people, I mean market participants. Yes. In the immediate aftermath of the referendum, it was a story for the world. Then for about five minutes, a story for just Europe. And then increasingly so, a story just for the UK. Mm. Is that going to change any time? Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there. Well, because, carry on, please. Because you've, you've got about 1.5 million viewers. Do I feel viewers. like I'm in the BBC? Yeah. I mean, I got, you know, I got... Continue this discussion. Yeah. No, the, the the answer is that um, that the 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 punch and Judy politics in in Parliament right now has suddenly become fascinating. Well, uh, the, for entertainment purposes, correct. I, I, can, not, I totally not for agree with you. Outcomes. But for but for the markets, it was a global story for for a moment in time. Certainly not anymore. No, that, I think that's very true. Um, so people are looking at UK assets and saying they're cheap on a historical basis. Sterling's cheap on a historical basis. Right. You, you're wanting to make an investment, but you can't make a conviction investment until you have defined what the outcome okay. of the general election might be. Can I give this be? an American spin? Yeah. Please do. Okay, I watched The Crown. Okay, I'm watching The Crown. You're Every watching The Crown. Love it. Okay. Well, <laughs> the, the woman that played Margaret was, was, was great. Anthony Eden, yeah. he went down on one topic, the Suez Canal. Mm. And some people recently, just in the last number of days, have gone back to Chamberlain and Germany and Hitler. Is Johnson going to be an Anthony Eden? Um... No, I, he strikes me as a, as a somewhat different character, but um, but in terms of the intractable problem that is Brexit, he is he, he he's his bed is so made, 
he is in that camp. He was as much the architect or the catalyst to, to, to have Brexit, to, to, to have the vote go the way that it did, that he's, 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 he's betting big on that outcome. He, he can't change his bet, so he keeps on doubling down. And, um, and the result will be a general election, I'm fairly sure of that, and it'll be after the 31st when the UK has not left. I'm also fairly certain of that. But does he then win the major- a majority in Parliament? I don't, I don't think so, but it's very likely that he could still be the, in charge of the largest party. I, sp- I haven't someone- seen Pharaoh focus in this studio like this in weeks. I spoke Continue. to someone just yesterday who was in the room two days ago yes, when yes, Prime yes, Minister Boris yeah. Johnson delivered that speech. Yeah. And that individual said to me, John, it was remarkable how calm he was. Mm. And then just turned on the charm. It was almost like he just expected this outcome and this is where they were heading, that he wants to pit the masses against the institutions. And ultimately, this is the whole objective to go to the electorate with and say, everyone's against you. I will help you deliver this. It's not it's not a stupid strategy, is it? Can I help can I bring some Americanness into this conversation? This is the BBC. Jeremy Northam played Anthony Eden in The Crown. He was like lights out. I, he blew me away how he got the you know the heart attack in the coronary of Anthony Eden and all that politics. And then there's Pip Torrens who was in The Crown advising the Queen and he's also in Poldark as well. Our American synthesis of you guys is through these masterpiece theater shows. <laughs> it's Poldark and The Crown yeah, yeah. and the rest of this baloney. What do we get wrong when we see the United Kingdom through the prism of your soap opera? Well, the class warfare that you see. I'm in, asking in the you. Soap I mean, Downton Abbey and all of it. What do we get wrong about you guys when we look at these the manufactured London, stuff? I, I think again and again and again. The number one issue for me, and Hugo can weigh in with his own interpretation on this. London is not the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is not London. And I think that's why many people miss the Brexit movement mm. if they didn't get out of the nation's capital. And by the way, what you see I'm in, guilty what, of that. what you see in Parliament is not representative of the country either. Hugo? Well, I'm, I, again, I'm going to respectfully disagree on, oh, the, on the, the... Is that as strong as I'll, I'll be? But, um, but, but Parliament is more representative of the country. And actually, obviously, there was a general election after the Brexit vote. So I think Parliament is representative of the, the divides that well, exist Well, Hugo, in let me UK. finesse it just a little yeah. bit further. The reason I've said this is that when it went to a vote for yeah. the referendum, mm-hmm. the majority said, leave. They did. The overwhelming majority of Parliament is not behind that. And when I say they're not representative of the country, I mean on that single issue. Yeah, and they've proven enough. again and again and again that they're not. No, I, I would say that's that's fair analysis. Um, but I and I would absolutely agree with your analysis that London is not the rest of the UK. If you go out into and the shires or, or any regions, rural communities in particular, so the conurbations all tended to vote to remain, but all the rural constituencies voted voted out. So there is this this divide. What do we miss uh, that 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 cosmopolitan versus rural divide? What do we, what do we miss? We we the the, the fair play and the and the, uh, the the cliches, if you like, about fair play. The cliches about uh, politeness and and institutional reverence and so on. Those things, I think, uh, have changed materially. So there's almost this sort of revolutionary atmosphere this in the great. shires. 
This is this will be out on our podcast, folks. We'll have this out worldwide uh, today with Hugo. Thank you, Hugo. Uh, Rogers at Dell Tech. This is really really interesting on the Bahamas and and of course and the Shires on, too. Yeah, the Shires. Uh, which I am from the Shires. What, so am I. What's a, what's a Shire? What's a Shire? Warwickshire. Which Shire is yours? Hertfordshire. Interesting. There we go. Hugo Rogers, great to see you. Tom's got no idea what's going this- on. going to digress to China right now. We can do that with Joyce Chang. She's with J.P. Morgan running all of research. Joyce, there is the ubiquitous 1911 Chinese imperial government railroad bonds that J.P. Morgan helped underwrite. It, it was an important moment in Chinese history. It led to all sorts of turmoil, but it goes to the depth of J.P. Morgan perspective on China, and that depth involves an economic slowdown right now. Six and you would suggest a vector that's even under 5%. Can you explain to me the political outcome of a 5.4 or 5.1 or dare I say 4.9% Chinese economic growth? Well, over the next decade, China's growth is going to 4.5%, but we're going to see it sub 6% next year. We have 5.8% in our forecast, and all eyes are on the U.S.-China talks on trade. Um, we've taken about 0.4% off of China's growth this year, just with the tariff measures that have been put into place. And you know, this has knock-on effects globally. Every 1% decline in China's growth is about 0.4% off of global growth, and that has ramifications for Europe. Europe, which is much more trade reliant than some other parts of the world, and also for Asia, where you still have 40% of trade, you know, out of Asia. So this is something that um, you know we're going to be watching over the longer term, not just with every iteration of the trade discussions, but as a longer term factor as we look at the growth forecast and the recession risk in the global economy. Joyce, how does that shape the character of the policy response in China? What are you looking for in the coming well, 12 months? Well, I mean, we've seen triple R cuts um, from China's central bank, and I think more of that will be forthcoming. But we've also seen is that they've gravitated to trying to use um, you know, tax cuts to see if they can stimulate consumption. So I think that you're going to see more of a response um, you know, on the fiscal side. You're going to see them, you know, I think, uh, rely less on increasing the debt. The debt has been a problem in China. You've got a debt ratio in the high 200% of GDP, and you already have a fairly high fiscal deficit um, you know, as well when you look at the local government financing vehicles. So I think you know, the income tax cuts that we've seen, um, things like perhaps you know, uh, reducing the size of the Social Security contribution, but ways in which they can actually use more of these measures to try to stimulate the economy. Through the growth square of 15-16, Joyce, you'll know better than most, the response was rather different. It was about pumping credit back into the system and doing it quite aggressively. Is there a trigger point that you have in mind, but it's not sub 6%, what is it that moves China away from this targeted gradual policy response to the slowdown they're experiencing? Well, there are constraints in China. The size of the fiscal deficit, if you look at this consolidated, is you know north of 11% of GDP. And this is why you know creating more debt really isn't um, an option for them. And there had been a focus on deleveraging um, you know, and basically keeping that debt ratio stable and trying to bring it down gradually over time. So China, um, like many uh, central banks, you know, does not have as many tools as it had at the time of the global financial crisis. I mean, a decade ago, China's stimulus was north of 7% of GDP. Yeah. 
and, and there's just not the scope to provide that type of stimulus anymore. With great respect, uh, Joyce, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but in, to get away from Shanghai, Beijing, and Hong Kong, and the cursory analysis someone like me makes, if I go inland to Changsha, where, where Mao Zedong began uh, his communist experiment, there's a, a city with a lot of foreign direct investment. It's something nobody talks about. What does all this mean for a city that's off our radar? I mean, if we get 5.2% GDP, if we get President Trump firm in his trade war, what's it mean to Changsha? Well, I, I think that you, you are seeing you know, a slowdown that's going to hit um, you know, those cities more because you've had overcapacity in many of those cities. Um, I think one thing that everybody's looking very closely at is the property market because that has actually you know, held in pretty well. But I think that you're going to need to see more of, a, of, a, of an impact um, you know, going forward. But I think China is very committed to doing this gradually. They still have a couple of fiscal measures um, you know, that they can put into place right now. But the property market is going to be one gauge of how this is playing out across some of the smaller um, you know, or smaller to medium-sized yeah. cities. Joyce, thank you for the update. Thanks, Joyce. Greatly appreciate it. Joyce Chor- uh, Always Chang, smart. Running, running a huge platform for Mr. Diamond at J.P. Morgan uh, this morning. White House reporter Justin Sink, as he goes in and listens to the testimony. Justin, what will you be listening for in the opening comments from Republican and Democratic leadership? I I think what we want to hear from Republicans is how seriously they're taking this uh, complaint versus uh, just attempting to protect the president. If we start to see a jailbreak on that side, it could spell some serious trouble for Republicans. And, and for Democrats, uh, I think we're going to be looking for if there's information that they haven't publicly released yet, but are trying to send a sort of salt into their uh, either questions or opening statements here. So, Justin, you know, Tom and I were just discussing, you know, how aggressive do you, you know, will the Republicans be against uh, uh, the acting DNI? What is your thoughts here? How do you think the Democrats are going to play? I mean, I'm sorry, the Republicans are going to play this today. Yeah, I mean, I think Republicans are going to try to run some interference for the president by saying that they don't agree with his characterization of of sort of how urgent this this matter is and, and the way in which he handled it. At the same time, this, of course, is a, somebody who was picked by President Trump and sort of an established intelligence uh, official who has a long uh, career in history in Washington. And so I, I expect more posturing sort of towards Democrats, uh, charges that they're just barreling towards impeachment without knowing the facts than a sort of attack on the acting DNI. Let's talk, Justin, uh, from the White House perspective. They're going to line up uh, against the chairman, Adam Schiff, of the 28th District of California. He's a former prosecutor, and he's someone that I think is less known in the maelstrom of Trump, Republican, and Democratic politics. Tell us about Chairman Schiff and what he hopes to, hopes, hopes to accomplish this morning. Yeah, I mean, Chairman Schiff uh, has obviously been in the middle of uh, the sort of previous Mueller investigation, so is well-versed in sort of trying to, to bring uh, the case against Donald Trump. He's somebody who really seems to annoy the president. He's had kind of a, a number of, of nicknames, some of which I, I don't think I can mention on, on radio right. for the chairman. You got and, that and, right, Justin. Behave yourself. <laughs> and um, 
and and so I think that there is frustration there. But but Chairman Schiff is somebody who understands the intelligence community well and is going to likely be able to sort of walk through this complaint systematically and try to highlight uh, as much potential wrongdoing as he can. The uh, ranking minority member uh, will take a different tack. Tell us about the gentleman from California's 22nd district. Yeah, so uh, Devin Nunez is, is, uh, has turned into a, a fierce protector of, of President Trump throughout this process. He is somebody who was kind of a moderate uh, Republican yes. in the pre-Trump era, but, but since then has really become kind of a devoted uh, protector of, of the president. And I expect some of the harshest criticism of Democrats and of uh, this entire process to come from, uh, from the ranking member. I, I mean, it'll come from the ranking uh, member of the Republican Party. Does everybody, do you expect here as uh, Chairman Schiff begins his comments here, do you expect, is this going to be a three, four, five hour, six hour extravaganza or do they get through it and move on? I, I don't think it's going to go quite that long, though Democrats obviously are going to want to sort of give this as much airtime and as attention as they can get. But uh, there are going to be elements of this that are naturally classified. Uh, and I think they're going to run into some roadblocks as they try to to go through this process. And so there might be a point at which they say, hey, let's discuss this in a closed session or in private rather than uh, in front of these interviews, in front of the cameras, just in hopes of um, you know making progress and, and uncovering new information that, that might be relevant to these congressmen. So, Justin, you've had a, a, all of about 15 minutes to take a look at this <laughs> document. What are some of the things that kind of just stand out for you? Sure. I, I mean, I think that we, uh, I think what is a couple of the interesting things. One, uh, the role that Rudy Giuliani played. We knew that he had been sort of freelancing here, um, had been pushing uh the idea that there was some sort of misbehavior by Vice President Biden or his son, but but we're seeing sort of deep consultation with Ukrainian officials here, uh, and uh, the the sort of emergence of a timeline. President Trump's phone call that we got the transcript of yesterday, uh, or the partial transcript of yesterday, and then follow-up meetings from Rudy Giuliani. And the other sort of interesting thing is that this whistleblower says that multiple U.S. officials expressed concern about uh, what Ukraine was hearing about uh, this this aid potentially being tied to uh, an investigation into Joe Biden or, or, you know, the need to play ball with President Trump. Let's go to Vice Admiral McGuire. Justin Sink with us, folks, with terrific White House perspective and, of course, on the, the ballet of Washington as well. What is the distinction that the gentleman in the blue suit and the gold tie is a seal? There's something magical in America's military lore of a seal. They're different. What does it mean that these politicians in suits and ties are talking to a vice admiral that's a seal? Yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of provides instant credibility uh, uh and to just underscore the point that I made before, this is not going to be sort of uh, an obvious uh, way that, that Republicans who are trying to take the air out of this entire controversy, they're not going to be able to beat up on this guy. He's a Trump appointee. He's got a long uh, and distinguished service history. This is an, It's not going to be a shirts versus skins type of battle here. <laughs> Justin, I'm looking through this document like the rest of us, and you know, with this, you know, the section number two of the efforts to restrict access to records related to the call. I know that's getting some play here early on. Kind of what is what kind of jumps out at you on this issue? 
Yeah, I mean, so obviously I don't think we have full understanding of how the White House handles documents. But if what is sort of laid out in this report is true, it suggests that somebody within the Trump administration, somebody within the White House saw uh, a need to specially protect or uh, move the records related to this call. And the question, of course, is why, Uh, you know, if uh, if a White House official heard the president and read it in the way that the Democrats are now alleging that it was as a sort of uh, effort to strong arm uh, Ukraine into investigating as political rivals and therefore deemed this sensitive, didn't want it to get out. Uh, that tells us a little bit about how the president's intent was interpreted within his own building and, and by his own aides. And so I think that's going to be a big point of inquiry for Democrats. Here. Chairman Schiff speaking right now. We're with Justin Sink, Bloomberg News, the White House. Justin, my dumb question of the day, and it goes to Justin Sink over the White House and Bloomberg <laughs> News. How do they decide who asks what question? Are they told by leadership, this is your angle, this is your question, or is it a free for all? Uh, it's somewhere in between. I think there certainly, especially on the staff level, is, is some amount of coordination where they want to hit uh, certain points in, in these documents. They want to get certain themes across, and, and uh, some lawmakers are, are more willing to sort of work as a team than others. But you know, every member of Congress is their own boss, and there we will certainly see people who want to use this as a chance to ask the questions that interest them, or even as shocking as it might be, uh, grandstand a little bit. And so, uh, as much coordination as there tr- attempts to be, and and as much as a congressional staff member tries to steer their member of Congress, and you know, we'll see how it plays out. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keen here in the nine o'clock hour. Justin Sink in Washington briefing us uh, as we await the hearing. Adam Schiff, the chairman from California, speaking right now. And Paul, I, I will editorialize. It is out of central casting. That is a Navy SEAL. That is there. a Navy SEAL. <laughs> the, there. Body, the body language is extraordinary. You can see it on radio, yep. folks. Yeah. Trust me, <laughs> you know what he looks like. Exactly right. So, Justin, you know, one of the issues I think Mr. McGuire will need to uh, address is kind of the timing here, the delay that some people are concerned about uh, between the doc- you know, documents actually being released to Congress. How do you think uh, that will go? Yeah, this really bubbled up, especially yesterday, because there was a report in the Washington Post that he had threatened to uh, resign and leave the administration because they weren't allowing him to testify freely and and frustrations over the process. He denied that strongly. Uh, He said, you know, he'd never been a quitter before in his life, uh, that the the, the report was untrue. And we heard the president complain about it later in the day. Uh, But uh, I think there is going to be a lot of questions from, from Democrats who say, hey, the law was pretty explicit on needing to turn this over. Now, the fact that the the White House has now authorized uh, the, the turning over of these documents that they've now become public, I think is going to deflate a little bit of the energy on that because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, they've got it. A uh, little bit of news flow coming in away from uh, Chairman Schiff and his opening comments to Vice Admiral McGuire in the world on the uh, uh, unclassified August 12th nine-page memorandum to Richard Burr, Senator Burr, and uh, the chairman, Adam Schiff, and this uh, uh, the summary here of uh, the whistleblower. Uh, in London, the U.S. House of Commons will sit through the Tory conference next week. John Farrell mentioned in a really wonderful conversation today that that was extraordinary, uh, that there would be the 
almost rudeness of with all that's going on that the House would not allow for the Tory conference. You you wonder how, Paul, they're going to pull that uh, off. House of Commons votes against week-long Tory conference recess. And then for Mr. Reese Moog, who is, of course, in support of Prime Minister uh, Johnson, a small headline, the government wants a general election as soon as possible. I think we knew that. And then Reese Moog also saying timing of the Queen's speech being discussed. I really can't translate that. I don't know. I, I think I, the, just, I just think the next the next uh, issue here is is a, an election, uh, and that'll be another opportunity for the people of the UK yeah. to opine on a number of issues, most mm. notably Brexit. Futures flat, yields come in. Let's get back to Justin Sink, our White House uh, reporter. What is the preparation of the White House to spin this this afternoon at some point and into the cable news industry this tonight? Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, the White House is probably caught a little flat-footed by how quickly this accelerated. It was United Nations week. The president's still up in New York uh, doing some fundraising before coming back to D.C. And to an extent, they had wound down their uh, anti-impeachment operation after the release of the Mueller report seemed to kind of get them into the clear. So, uh, you know, that being said, obviously they're going to and have been sending uh, surrogates out to talk on TV to make the case briefing members of Congress, uh, about a dozen of them came over yesterday to to read the letter in the morning before it was publicly released and, and talk about strategy. The president called into that call or in, into that meeting. And so, uh, you know, engaging lawmakers, engaging surrogates out and releasing talking points. There's kind of a funny thing that happened on Capitol Hill yesterday where the, the White House accidentally sent its talking points about this whole thing, not only to Republicans on Capitol Hill, but Democrats as well, and then tried to quickly retract it. But that, I think that yeah. only drew attention to email <laughs> inboxes. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to watch. Mr. Nunes now speaking, the chairman from California, the ranking minority member from California. Really interesting to me in terms of the body language today, Paul Sweeney, sitting directly below uh, Devin Nunes, the minority member, is Mr. Ratcliffe of Texas, right. who put on a drama, uh, or some would say, a, if you're a Trump supporter, a magnificent performance, performance during the, um, the Mueller, Mueller testimony and then was vetted for positions and had to step aside with some uproar about his track record. I don't want to get into it right now. But you wonder what a John, Paul Sweeney, you wonder what a John Ratcliffe will do today versus the theatrics that we saw, uh, whatever your politics, yeah. during the Mueller hearing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, Justin, I, you know, my next question was kind of what would be a win today for the Republicans in this House committee? You know, I think they just want to continue to make their case that that although this uh, behavior might not be the the thing that everybody hopes for out of a president, that you didn't see that explicit quid pro quo. You want to get as much as you can from the act in DNI to suggest that there there aren't existential concerns that the president is sort of electioneering with his foreign policy and. You just want to kind of make that case over and over again while yeah. suggesting the Democrats are, are sort of unhinged and, and singularly focused on, on impeachment. Justin, what is the distinction that whatever happens in this small moment of this large drama that defense or Pentagon or military is involved? I mean, Ukraine is at some kind of distress, war slash conflict with Russia. There's the whole baggage of the Crimea. I get all that. But if the transactions, the political and behavioral and handshake transactions of this kerfuffle, that's a word that uh, Willem Bauder used the other day, this kerfuffle involves military and Pentagon, does that change the debate? 
Well, I think what's what's inter- interesting about this, and President Trump has done this before, is it now politicizes the the military budget in a way that it hadn't been before. You know, there's always been a, an argument between defense hawks and um, more dovish pe- dovish folks, Democrats especially, concerned about defense spending. But right now, what we're seeing is between this Ukraine aid that's being used by the president, between the military construction funds that he's tapping to help build his border wall. Democrats who might otherwise have just sort of shrugged and said, we don't really care what the, the Pentagon's spending as long as we can uh, continue to fund social programs, are now going to take a, a harsher look at this. They're going to say, why are we giving uh, a president who might be using these powers to pursue his his electoral um, sort of strategy to, to go after signature initiatives that he couldn't otherwise fund through Congress. It's a it's an interesting yeah. place for the Pentagon to be. August 25th, Radio Free Europe. Paul, I'll just scoot through this as we wait uh, the testimony of the Vice Admiral. One Ukrainian soldier was killed. Three were wounded in the conflict zone in eastern Ukraine after Russia-backed separatists opened fire with, quote, grenade launchers, heavy machine guns, sniper rifles, and small arms, according to the Ukrainian military. And I would say that's from a legitimate source radio free europe the issue is there's still conflict and i'm certain the people in the eastern region of ukraine would say this isn't conflict it's war well i'll leave that to other people right but this is a visceral immediate thing right now it is it's a very immediate thing for the folks in that part of the world and uh, the military aid uh from the united states obviously plays a key role here so you know justin it's interesting it's give us some context about today uh how important is today this uh, testimony in the context of what might be in you know at the beginning of an impeachment process? Yeah, so I think there's a couple interesting elements. One of which is Congress is expected to leave for for recess uh, pretty shortly, and so this is one of the best shots Democrats have to sort of um, yeah. elevate this process before they they get out of town. And so I think there's sort of Justin. a yeah, there's sort of a, an important um, way yeah. for them to. Yeah. To flag it. Yes, sorry, go ahead. Justin, they're always leaving for recess. (laughs) Haven't you figured that out? When are they not leaving soon for recess? That is true. Uh, I take your point. You take my point. You better take my point. Nathan (laughs) Hager takes my point all the time. Justin Sink, when I look at the White House, I've asked this question three times today. We talked of a legal team of President Nixon, a legal team of President Clinton. Define the White House legal team of President Trump, or is he his own attorney? Uh, he does have lawyers, and I think lawyers have been involved in sort of the release of these documents, but he does not have uh, a, a group sort of specially carved out to deal with this impeachment issue. They they had brought um, that type of team in for the, for the Mueller inquiry, and they had been expecting it for Russia, but I don't think that they have prepared, and they have not yet uh, sort of signaled that they're going to staff up in a way that, that takes this new inquiry seriously. Now, but again, going back to why this this hearing today is important, I think we're going to see today whether this has real momentum and uh, Democrats, you know, there's a big question about whether Nancy Pelosi just sort of rhetorically changed the investigations that they were already doing or if it, it, this actually signals a new effort by uh, by Democrats here, and if there's a sense that this is really going to stick, that this is going to really be a headache for the president, um, we might start to see staff, you know, the White House staff up and, and bring in some outside counsel. Yeah, just following up on that, it seems like, and it just kind of re- reading through this document quickly, uh, the name of Rudy Giuliani, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, appearing quite frequently. What's the, how unusual is that 
role for what appears to be the president's private uh, attorney kind of acting in the context of quasi-government official? Yeah, I don't think that there is a great sort of modern precedent to that. I mean, obviously, presidents have always had outside allies, people who are close to them acting on their on their behalf. But uh, that's part of what I think makes this so unique is that Rudy Giuliani is playing a, a role as a lawyer, as a diplomat, as a uh, activist, as a sort of campaign official. And um, uh, well, that's a relatively unprecedented and unique role. Uh, Justin Sink, we're going to let you go. Our White House reporter, he's got a lot to do. Really, we're, we really were jealous of his time. We took too much of it this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.